Welcome to Dialogue Across Difference, an event series hosted by the Center for the Study of Politics and Governance at the University of Minnesota's Humphrey School of Public Affairs. Join us as Center Director Larry Jacobs and guests engage in conversations across the political and policy spectrum on issues of the day. Good afternoon, I'm Larry Jacobs. I'm a professor at the University of Minnesota's Humphrey School of Public Affairs, and we welcome you to today's conversation. We're very uh, excited about today's program, and I wanna welcome you uh, to a conversation with Vin Weber, who's at Mercury Public Affairs, has had a longstanding affiliation with the Humphrey School of Public Affairs here at the University of Minnesota, and was a member of Congress from the southwestern part of the state. Rich Lowry, who was a longtime editor of the National Review and a prominent conservative spokesperson and thinker. Uh, terrific to have both of you with us today. Thank you so much. Great to be with you, Larry, as always. Thanks so much for having me. Yeah, Rich, let me start with you. You wrote a column um, maybe a month ago where you said for Biden, failure is very much an option. And you talked about the peril that he faced and the possibility of a complete collapse. Um, do you still see that as, as the, um, the scenario he's looking at? Um, well, what I wrote that column about was the possibility that the reconciliation bill would completely collapse, which is still a possibility. I think it's, it's uh, a little uh, less likely, I, I would say, um, maybe 40, 30, 40% chance it collapses. <clears throat> but in the meantime, it looks like his presidency is collapsing, <laughs> which, which wasn't what I was I was writing about, but some of these poll numbers are just to be below 40% is really astonishing. And I, I think just speaks to um, some of his weaknesses and the weakness of the Democratic Party generally. His weakness is that he won the Democratic nomination by default, basically by not being Bernie Sanders and be, being <clears throat> seemingly the, the most uh, same safe alternative at a time when Democrats are desperate to get rid of Donald Trump, and then won the general election more or less by default. 70% uh, of Biden voters say they're voting more against Trump than for Biden. And um, this should have led to, uh, I, I mean, these two facts, I don't think they're really controversial, that he, that he won both by default, should have led to a certain caution and moderation, you would have thought. Instead, immediately Biden and Democrats talked themselves into the proposition that they had received a world historical mandate from the voters to Pass a, a agenda on par with FDR, FDR or LBJ. So it was this vast mismatch between why he won and his interpretation of his victory. And, you know, he, he lost seats in the House in 2020. Democrats lost seats. They have a tie in the Senate, um, owing to narrow victories in two special elections in, in Georgia, where Donald Trump probably had a decisive um, influence pushing those seats his way. And if you just compare that to FDR, it comes in 1932 with, uh, I think, 58 Senate uh, seats and maybe a 200 house, 200 seat House majority. And then in 34, it goes bigger, right? I think Republicans, it's astonishing to look back to, or 16 senators, I think, in 1934. 
uh, hundred, uh, I think under a hundred house members of the house, maybe 89 or something. So in that circumstance, yeah, you can, even in that circumstance, you can't do entirely what you want. There's always fissures within a party, even when the set dominates. But still, that's how you, you pass a transformative agenda. And just the conditions aren't there. They're trying to do it anyway. They may succeed in getting um, a slimmed down version of this reconciliation bill, which will have significant accomplishments in it. But it's not, even though this bill is superficially popular in the polls, I don't really think it really speaks to things that people are, are concerned about. And on top of this, and I'll, I'll wind up my perhaps long-winded answer here, Larry, you know, he's created at least two disasters that were totally unnecessary. He inherited a situation at the border that was under control, that was under control through rational and humane means. Trump was no longer separating people, children at the borders, um, it, and, and he blew it up for, for no reason and has been paying the price, <clears throat> excuse me, since then. Afghanistan, you can argue, maybe wasn't as sustainable. Um, but in, in my mind, you know, several thousand U.S. troops with air support and maintenance support for the Afghan army had created a situation that was unsatisfactory, but kind of stalemate. That was better than the alternative. And he also blew that up for no good reason. And I think that the Afghanistan thing uh, is kind of kind of hollowed out his presidency, um, really blew away the sense that he was competent. It was going to bring a normality um, back to, to the center of our national politics. And then the final big factor that you can't ignore is just the state of the economy, where some numbers look great, but inflation's been bad. It's Every poll shows it's a top level concern and real wages have actually been going down. And there's just there's no way for any president to thrive in that economic circumstance. So that, that's brought them really low and they're looking at a, a potential uh, wipeout next year. Rich, I'm curious, uh, you were talking about Biden and the Democrats overreaching given the elections in 2020. When you think back to the 2000 election in which George Bush was effectively selected as president uh, by the uh, US Supreme Court, and then they got into office and pursued a pretty conservative agenda, certainly in tax cuts. Um, is that an example also of overreaching? Well, one, I would, I would disagree with the premise. I don't think the Supreme Court selected him. Um, all, all the post-game recounts, media recounts in Florida show that under any standard for counting those ballots, Bush won Florida and was a duly elected president of the United States, had an ambitious tax agenda uh, but but his, his most, um, uh, arguably his most significant item out of the gate was a bipartisan education bill that Ted Kennedy uh, voted for. And then by, the, by late 2001, he's kind of running out of steam. It's not, even then, it's not clear what, it, what is he going to do next because his compassionate conservatism didn't have a lot of content. And then you have the September 11th attacks, which are transformative. And, uh, you know, obviously, it'll be argued for all time, um, w whether the, the response was justified or wise, certainly Iraq for this juncture does not look as though uh, it was it was wise. But that that's what gave him in effect, a kind of, of mandate, you know, he had 89 90% approval, um, both the Afghan war and the Iraq war had significant bipartisan support. So I, I don't think it's I don't think it's comparable to what what Biden has done here. I'll say though, you know, there's something to be said, and, and this surely was Pelosi's thinking. 
you know, I have an eight seat majority. It's probably going to be wiped away one way or the other, no matter what we do uh, this year. So let's just take advantage of, um, uh, of, of this precious time we have to make some really important changes. Um, I, I think that's justifiable kind of for an ideologue to have, have that position, but it's, it's not going to be very appealing to the, the public. I mean, this, this, the Build Back Better bill, it doesn't, it's not addressing any top, top level public concern. It's just things that Democrats can do and can do now. And even that's not what they say publicly, but that's everyone, that's what everyone knows what's what's happening. And that's just not a good rationale for for a big trillion dollar legislation, in let, my view. Let, let, let's get back to Build Back Better in a, in a moment um, now that it's passed the House. Uh, Vin, I want to ask you, um, you were around and were elected and were around when Ronald Reagan um, was elected. And you'll recall his first two years, not so great. They had a uh, recession, it boosted unemployment to uh, near 10%, uh, GDP dropped by almost 2%, uh, pretty extraordinary. And some of the same language that, that Rich Lowry is using to, to really spell the demise of the Biden presidency was used with regard to uh, Reagan, at least you know, to the midpoint of the, of the first term. Um, you see any parallels? Is there a possibility for Biden to bounce back as Reagan did? And um, well, uh, yeah, I mean, sure. I mean, uh, I'd say a couple things. First of all, the yes, I was not. I was elected in 1980, and the first two years of the Reagan administration were the most severe recession since the Great Depression. Not in terms of length, but in terms of depth. But it was engineered, if you will, and I very much supported it by the Federal Reserve tightening the money supply to kill off the inflation of the 1970s. And, and I became a very good friend of Paul Volcker. So when I say that, it is no way a criticism. I think he did exactly what we had to be done. And I, as an aside, whenever I hear Janet Yellen, who has said repeatedly that she's not worried about inflation because the Federal Reserve can get it under control if it becomes a problem, I think, yeah, we can jack interest rates up to double digit levels, throw millions of people out of work, bankrupt countless businesses, and inflation will come back under control. Uh, it'd be nice to not have to do that. Um, but Reagan also, in the first two years, cut taxes substantially so that when inflation collapsed, and it collapsed pretty quickly under Volcker's tending of the money supply, uh, we were set for a, a, a takeoff. And we had seven years of growth. And of course, Reagan, two years after, the mid, after losing seats in the midterm, carried 49 states. So I, that, I, I, I don't see a parallel in terms of policies with Biden today. One other thing I'd have to say, Rich mentioned the, the polling that shows Biden's approval down to 36%. Well, he didn't mention the 36, but it is 36 in the Quinnipiac poll, 38 in another poll. That that's approval ratings are bad. If that was the main thing, I'd say, yeah, he can do things to bounce back. But the more and more devastating data that I've seen on this president, who I know reasonably well and always kind of like, is that people really have turned against him personally. Uh, pluralities in the polling will say that they don't believe he's honest, that they don't believe he's a good leader. And by 48 to 46, one poll said, um, um, plurality believes he is not mentally competent to be president. That says that it's more than just a disagreement with policies or the condition of the country. He's, he's, he is, he's not the person in the minds of the public that he was when he got elected. And I think it's hard to overcome that. 
Yeah, I'm thinking back, though, to Donald Trump, whose ratings on all those items that you talked about weren't just pluralities. It was, he was just, you know, in the basement very early in his term. And And, and he lost. He lost the Congress. He lost the president. He he lost. But as you well know, that um, if you actually look at the vote totals, it was a very close loss. Um, If you just move 50,000, we could play God and move 50,000 votes among, you know, four states, states. he would have won. Um, and of course, he had the second highest uh, uh, vote total um, of any president. So it was yeah. a pretty extraordinary. Uh, I mean, what strikes me is the question is, it, are the fundamental uh, issues here uh, related to inflation on the economy? Do we think those are durable? Is it really that inflation is going to be, you know, we heading into a 1970s uh, inflation scenario? even though so much of what's happening now is tied to COVID and the restarting of the economy, the fact that consumers have over $2 trillion in savings and are looking to spend it, that we had a, you know, kind of a lean uh, just-in-time management system, manufacturing system, so the inventories were slow and, you know, all these bottlenecks we see in the economy. You know, uh, Powell at the Fed is saying, yeah, this will be resolved. Uh, within the next few months, maybe by next summer. Um, And there are plenty of economists who see a similar story. So my question is, let's assume that there's a Reagan bounce back on the economy. Um, Is that great news for Democrats? Maybe not in time for midterms, but- Obviously that would would help. And it's not, that's a plausible scenario. I I would guess inflation could be lower next year. Some of my colleagues disagree, but I I just got to think, you're right. So much of it is related to supply chain. It's not kind of a, a monetary inflation the way it was in the 60s and the 70s. It came self-perpetuating and took a real severe uh, recession in different policy direction, kind of squeeze out of the system. It's, it's, it's more supply chain things that you think will be worked out, right? One way or the other. Markets, markets adjust. There are a lot of people, uh, private companies with a lot of money on the line, figuring out how to make this work better. And you think eventually... Uh, they're they're going to uh, do it. And Biden, I don't think he'd make a huge difference on any of this stuff, but maybe he can at the margins. He's at least engaged on it now when they're very dismissive of it for, for most of the year. So best case scenario for Biden, um, it, inflation eases, the uh, um, labor market heals, and the economy is growing robustly. While in the spring, let's please hope God, you know, the pandemic is finally really behind us because that's another drag, you know, that, that Delta stretched out the pandemic longer than most people expected. They passed Build Back um, better. So, you know, he's got three, excuse me, three legislative accomplishments under his belt between the COVID relief, the infrastructure of this, and he looks a little better. But what is looking better at this point? You know, is he getting above 50 before next November? I don't think there's any chance of that. Um, so he might go higher and take the head, edge off the losses. But I would think something like a 30 seat loss is, is almost baked in the cake. But but then then uh, you know knows, knows Congress better than I do. No, I, I very much agree with that. And I and I think that the time to turn it around is a little less than than people think. Obviously, the election is about a year from now in November, but the dynamics of the elections, midterm elections particularly, really are set in place a lot earlier than that. I remember during my first term when that recession was hitting hard and we were all worried about it. I remember walking down the halls with a very senior Democrat, a Southern Democrat. And I, I, I said, Mr. He was the chairman. I said, Mr. Chairman, you, what do you think? You think the economy's 
going to get better and that we they won't the voters won't take it out on all of us and he said well i'm not going to try to try to imitate his draw but with his draw southern draw he said there's a saying around here vin the cake is in the oven by the fourth of july and that's a piece of homely wisdom but it's kind of true if, if i think that if it's going to turn around for biden and the democrats it has to turn around in about the next six months or it would take a truly large event to change much and that's why i i think Rich is probably right. I, I think a 25 to 35 seat loss is is on the verge of being baked into the cake. Now, I saw Gingrich the other day predicted a 70 seat loss. Uh, that's because Newt has always proceeded on the assumption that's, that you get nowhere. With 30, seat, a 30 seat loss <laughs> is baked in the case. If Newt yeah. says 70, it, it's, it's going to be 30. <laughs> yeah, I think, like I said, he, he, does, he doesn't believe in understatement. So, uh, you know, I, I don't, but I do think that if things get worse, and there are things that could get worse, we haven't even talked much about foreign policy. The Russians are rattling around Ukraine and the Chinese are. Yep. threatening Taiwan, we could have, there could be a lot of things that get a lot worse. And then you could have a 50, 60 seat loss. Let's get to that in a second. I'm going to, before we move on too fast, uh, just say a word about Virginia. Um, of course, that's all people were talking about uh, a week or so ago. And to be honest with you, I was not that impressed. A lot of commentary, it's, it, was, it was so predictable in a lot of ways. It's just this kind of generic environmental forces. Once Biden's approval is collapsing, you know, it's down almost 15 points, more than 15 points uh, from where it had been and the economy inflation, uh, which were listed as a top concern of voters. But there's one thing about Virginia that I think is, is, is significant potentially. I'd be curious about it, which is midterm elections are always about intensity. And in the battle to stoke intensity, Republicans have issues like um, uh, parental rights, and Democrats can disagree with it, but what are they bringing to the table? I mean, infrastructure and, and those kind of projects, it's going to take months to get anything you know, out there people could see. They passed Build Back Better, and I know there's a big rollout of this, and there are going to be a thousand meetings, but it, it's not going to bring the same intensity. I'm just curious, do you see this as an intensity battle, Rich, in which it's, it's really unfair advantage for Republicans, and you're on mute right now. Okay. I think I muted myself, and I thought I was unmuting myself. Uh, I think it was intensity in part, and the Youngkin people are talking all along, you know, right at the beginning, and you never know, you know, they're blowing smoke, that just no one was ex particularly excited about McAuliffe, you know, this this white male, a time when identity politics means more on the left than, than it has, who, who had been there before, and it kind of uh, lost a step. And Terry McAuliffe is a, a delightful guy. I mean, anyone you know, in a room with him is going to like him. But th this was the key telling me he was going to lose. Is just the, the last month or so, he just looked and sounded exhausted, desperate, and afraid. And education played huge. And, and I, Larry, I agree with you. It's, it's easy to overinterpret just one race when it was clearly a wave around, around the, the country. Um, you know, you don't get the state senator of New Jersey, Democrat state senator, losing to a truck driver in a normal election. So that would say, well, Youngkin's going to win no matter what. But I think Youngkin easily could have come up short. I mean, he won by fewer than two two points um, if he didn't run such a shrewd campaign. And for me, what was encouraging as someone who's not enamored of, of Donald Trump, is there a way to uh, get beyond Trump 
without alienating Trump voters that the party now just needs to win. It just does. And Youngkin was able to do this. He was helped by two factors. One, there wasn't a primary. There's kind of weird hybrid convention that made it easier for him to get the nomination. And two, it wasn't a federal race. You know, it's more more nationalized. But that said, you know, he tiptoes around Trump uh, during the the primaries, says some favorable things about him, doesn't create uh, any receipts that can be used against him in the general election, like saying, you know, the 2020 election was stolen or any of that. And then once he's got the nomination, then he's like, I'm I'm my own guy and just doesn't want to talk about Trump at all and went with a a totally opposite approach of Trump. I mean, one reason I was shocked that Trump won in 2016 is usually we were mentioned, you mentioned Larry George W. Bush earlier, and I, I mentioned compassionate conservatism. The point of compassionate conservatism politically is like to tell people I'm not threatening. You don't need to hate and fear me. Now, given what our politics are, people hated, learned to hate and fear him, you know, soon enough. Barack Obama, the same thing. I'm not red America. I'm not blue America. You know, I'm, I'm this fresh, fresh-faced, new, new direction in, in American politics. Don't hate. Don't fear me. Trump in 2016 is like, go ahead, hate me. You know, and my people are going to love me, and they're just going to be just enough. And he was right. But Yunkin, for for months, and he was criticized for this, just ran these stereotypical kind of ads. Um, you know, my, my, it was tragic. My dad lost his job as, and when I was a teenager. I had to work in a diner. I worked hard, hard at practicing the co- uh, basketball. I earned a scholarship. Then I built a business and I'm wearing the sleeves vest. And God darn it, I, I'm just a, I'm a suburban dad. You can meet me at the sidelines of the soccer game or at Starbucks, you know, on Saturday afternoon. Totally opposite than Trump and very conventional. And so I think Yunkin was a combination of finding a way around Trump well, with, without alienating the Trump voters, in fact, turning them out at a better level than Trump did yeah. uh, in the rural areas, at hitting, not being afraid to be combative on a hot button cultural issue, critical race theory, which got a lot of attention, but the Yunkin people tell you was not the main issue in education. It was important. Right. Um, and then, uh, so, but hitting that, and then, but then also doing like a very swing statey, especially Virginia kind of practical politics. I'm going to repeal the gas tax. Um, I'm going to help your cost of living. I'm going to increase standards in education, and I'm going to increase pay for teachers. You know, the last two times Virginia uh, Republicans won in Virginia, Bob McDonnell and Jim Gilmore. It was very much in that mold. So uh, I, I think this this is a model for for the party. It can't be replicated everywhere. It'll be a lot harder in some places. But that was what was most encouraging and meaningful to me from Virginia. Thanks, Richard. Finn, I want to ask you a question sure. on this on the uh, role of Donald Trump. Um, uh, After the election, uh, Mr. Trump uh, issued a statement that said, if we don't solve the presidential election fraud of 2020, Republicans will not be voting in 22 or 24. Uh, Single most important uh, thing for Republicans to do. And so the question is, okay, Trump gave Youngkin a pass. He was willing to do a phone-in rally uh, and not impose himself. But he doesn't sound like he's going to give anyone else a pass. So is this a threat? Are we looking at you know, another Georgia 21 um, in which Trump's intervention like that could well have cost Republicans the two special elections? Uh, yeah. yeah, the short answer is yes. I, I, think that, I think that that and not the resurgence of the economy or Joe Biden is the greatest threat to Republicans. Um, and you're right, it was, it was handled well in Virginia, we, maybe through Yunkin's skill, but also through a little bit of luck. But if 
if Trump injects himself into the 2022 elections, particularly with a focus on making everybody say that the last election was stolen, that's a greater threat to Republicans, in my view, than changing economic circumstances or even an improvement in Biden's polling. It could be really, really bad. I want to make one more point about the the election in Virginia, because as you know, I've got a residence in Virginia. close friend of mine who's been who is about as deeply involved in Republican politics as anybody I know and has been for decades has a theory. Terry McCall, great guy, and I agree with Rich on that, nice guy. Terry and the Democrats, you know, every other word was Trump in the campaign, young making Youngkin look like Trump. My friend's theory is that that did not have the effect of motivating Democrat votes, but did have the effect of telling all the wary Trump voters, particularly in southwestern uh, Virginia, that they needed to get out and vote for Trump, for Yonkin. And he basically has got all sorts of numbers that he says prove that. But that's kind of an interesting take on what happened in that race. Um, so I guess the question heading into uh, 22 and 24, and I think, Rich, you may have answered this, is, is Donald Trump uh, essential for Republicans to turn out a winning coalition? And I guess you'd look at Virginia and say, well, not in Virginia. Yonkin did it on his own and was thankful that Trump didn't kind of invade. Um, so are you pretty confident Republicans can get out their Republican base, can actually mobilize winning in, in these kind of more competitive areas? Uh, yeah, <clears throat> sorry, sorry, Larry, we're talking about 2022 or 2024? Yeah, 2022 and, and 2024. Yeah, <laughs> so 2022, I just don't, going back to what we were saying, I just, they're not gonna mess it up. I mean, there'll, there'll be some bad candidates, there, there always are, um, but I, I, I just be very surprised if they don't, you know, if they don't take 30 seats or so, and, and, and Senate's a little tougher, but I'd be kind of surprised if they didn't take the Senate as well. So 24 is a real tricky thing. Right, and just so much depends on Trump uh, and what he does. I'm increasingly of the view, I can't prove it. I've been so wrong about so many things related about Trump. I thought he was, you know, in August 15, I thought he was on the verge of fading, right? <clears throat> and there's no way he could maintain people's interests the way, the way he had. But I just wonder if imperceptibly, just millimeter by millimeter every week, his grip is just getting a little looser. You know, um, but uh, and and his decision whether to go or not will be hugely consequential. Probably the most important single person's decision affecting the future of the Republican Party since Eisenhower said he's a Republican and he's going to run. You know, post post World War II, it'll totally change the field, totally change what what happens. It doesn't run. He has zero chance of winning the nomination. Uh, if he runs, you know, a really good chance. Probably. I was talking to one. Senator, Republican senator with national aspirations, which I know does, doesn't narrow it down very much. Uh, and he was saying just a couple of weeks ago, if Trump runs, he'll clear the field and he'll be the nominee. And there's no question. I think that's wrong. I don't think he'll clear the field. Uh, I don't think he'd necessarily win, but he'd have you know some real significant <laughs> chance of winning. And I just think maybe if he's running against Biden, if Biden's at 38% approval, maybe Trump could win. But you know, you had a wall of 81 million people or whatever it was voting for Biden that was primarily about voting against Trump and just starting off from that place again is doesn't make any sense to me. He, during most of his presidency, from my perspective, I was always worried about the character flaws. Seems though we're kind of tiptoeing through them. You know, there are tweets that are terrible and things. He, uh, no president of the United States should 
ever have said, but most of the government from governance from my perspective, even though it was shambolic, the outcomes were pretty good. Um, but then it all fell apart after the election. It's primarily just done ego. He just couldn't ad admit that he lost. He's dragged the party down this rabbit hole of conspiracy theories about what happened in, in 2020. And, and those things make him even more unsuitable for the office than he was at the outset. So I, I'm hoping he doesn't go, but no one knows whether he, he, he will or not. Uh, only he knows, and he probably doesn't even know yet. Um, if you're uh, listening, I know there are a bunch of you out there. Please give us some questions. We've got some here, and I welcome a lot more. Finn Weber, you were around after the 2012 uh, Obama win when the Republican Party set up what became known as the autopsy to evaluate why the party had lost a string of, of presidential elections. With the exception of Trump's win in 2016, there's been a continuation of the party struggling to get a majority. Um, and as the autopsy said, the failure is due to a lack of inclusivity and a welcoming that would broaden the base of the party. Has Donald Trump set that, that mission back so far that it's gonna be difficult for the Republican Party to be the majority party that you used to talk about and that Ronald Reagan um, achieved. I mean, Ronald Reagan and Republicans was a, were they had a majority party, and it doesn't look like it's heading in that direction. Well, I don't know, Larry. I, I certainly in 2016 I thought that Trump was going to absolutely destroy the Republican Party's chances of building a majority coalition. That that was my deep held belief, and but. I don't think I was right about that. I mean, Trump is actually doing, Trump did actually a little bit better with minority voters than Mitt Romney or John McCain had. Uh, a lot of the polling, particularly in the Hispanic community, indicates that a movement toward the Republicans and conservatives may well be continuing, uh, stronger in some places like South Texas than in other places. But Youngkin did very well with the Hispanic vote in Virginia, which is, not like Texas or Arizona, but it's substantial. And it's a, it's a different, it, it, in a way, the Republicans are acting on the autopsy in the sense that they are now focusing on organizing and communicating, particularly with Hispanics, less so with African-Americans, but that's what the autopsy talked about, is try, we need to communicate with th those constituencies. What's different is it's a different kind of message than I think any of us anticipated was going to be the message in 2012. It's, it's a, it is, it, in a sense, it is a Trumpian message. It's a, you know, nationalistic, uh, values-oriented, and, uh, and, and it seems to be moving voters. Yeah, I mean, it is interesting if you look at the aggregate numbers, um, and I agree with you, there are variations around the country. Um, both Hillary Clinton and Joe Biden won about two thirds of the uh, Latino vote and the black vote is you know, about almost 90%. So there's, <laughs> there appears to be you know, a real challenge there for, for Republicans, particularly in the era where we're seeing more and more of the electorate uh, becoming um, you know, uh, people of color. Um, Rich Lowry, I'm, I'm... I think, Larry, can I, can I just pile in on that really quickly? Yep. Uh, this reminds me a little bit um, what, what we're talking about, the Virginia election, how they're you know, these, these big trends that uh, uh, make a mistake to focus too much on, on uh, an, an individual or an individual race. I think this is a little bit true um, with, with the Latino vote. I do think there's signs it is trending um, the Republican way. I mean, Trump's performance in Florida and in the Rio Grande Valley was was 
very notable. Some signs have show, showed up of it in, in Virginia as, as well. And I think it's something Democrats are starting to be worried about. And I think what's happening is just throughout the Western world, every single country, no matter what the party is, the candidate, the agenda, you've seen this sorting on the basis of education, where college educated and above people are tending, trending towards the Democrats and non-college are, are tr tending towards the Republican or, or the, the center-right parties. And that trend was evident before Trump came around. Trump sort of accelerated and put an underline on it underneath it, but he didn't start it. And that trend will um, tell, in my view, among Latinos. You know, we always talk about working class whites. Well, uh, we need the modifier of whites because there's so many working class Latino and black people, obviously. And if you have a Republican party that has more of a populist message and is appealing more to working class people, it, it should, that Republican party actually should be able to cross, I think, racial lines better than a stereotypical uh, Republican uh, party could. And I think we're seeing signs, you know, you're right to emphasize it's, it's small, it's minor at the moment, but it's, um, I, I think it's yeah. discernible and could be a trend that carries forward. Can I, you, can can I add wait, 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 hold on that, Larry? Um, I'm, just ask, I'm gonna ask you a question. Yeah, Which ahead. is, um, we have a number of Republican states that are passing uh, new laws with regards to uh, voting. And a lot of the pushback on it um, has been on racial grounds, that these laws are aimed at suppressing, discouraging, um, votes by uh, African-Americans and other people of color. Does that, you know, pose a threat to this kind of, you know, maybe subterranean and, and slow, but gradually building argument about the, um, the Republican Party's success with voters of color? Well, I suppose, I it, go ahead, Rich. Asking Vin? No, go ahead, Rich. Sorry, if it was directed to you, I don't, I don't mean to jump in. No, go, you go ahead. No, go ahead, Ben. I, I just, I just. Well, uh, I, I would say if it's real, um, yeah, it poses a threat. But it's it's amazing to me. Listen, I mean, both parties have have arguments that delegitimize their chance, their their losses. They're, with the Republicans, it's voter fraud and stolen elections, things like. That. With the Democrats, it's voter suppression. Meanwhile, voter participation is growing, particularly among people of color. There's no evidence that I can see that the vote has actually been suppressed. So I, I and by the way, in, in polling, African-American voters are more strongly supportive, for instance, of voter ID than our white voters. So, you know, yeah, if, if there are actual things that really do suppress votes in, among people of color, that would be bad on every ground, but I don't think it's happened and I don't think it's gonna happen. Richard, do you wanna jump in on that? You're muted. You're muted. I, I basically agree with that, unsurprisingly. You know, some of these provisions that have been brooded about in these bills, um, you know, limiting Sunday early voting in a way that's pretty clearly aimed at limiting the so-called souls to the polls efforts that black churches wage are indefensible wrong, and they've been stripped out and, and not passed. The rest of these things, whether you think they're right or wrong, are not going to suppress the vote. Um, it, it just, you know, Georgia is supposedly the poster child for voter suppression. Everyone is registered in, in Georgia. They have automatic registration. League of Women Voters, there's a story in the Journal Constitution, I believe it was uh, within the last year. League of Women, Women Voters has given up trying to register people. They can't find anyone new to register. Turnout has been up in, in, in Georgia. And the idea that kind of 
pandemic emergency measures like drive-through voting in Texas, that if you roll that back, that's voter suppression. It just doesn't make sense to me. And just last thought on this, Larry, I do think there, the background to this, some of it's Trump in complaining about 2020, some of the Republicans have cared very long time about security around elections and worried about voter fraud. But some of it's clearly they, they, they think, well, turnout's not great for us. I don't think that's true. I, I think Virginia shows high turnout helps the, the Republican Party now. So if any of this is motivated by trying to suppress turnout, it is not just wrong on the merits, but but it's it doesn't even make sense, I think, for partisan purposes anymore. Okay, so that's an important Absolutely. point. You're, you're kind of challenging the, the thinking of some Republicans that we want to hold down the uh, turnout because it'll hurt us. You're saying, well, that doesn't appear to be the case. Virginia, certainly. Um, and, you know, as I said, Donald Trump came very close to winning in 2020. Here's the one part of the story or one of the parts of the story about the voter election laws, I think, is significant. In Georgia, one of the, um, one of the new um, laws that have come into place puts the, the ultimate control over election um, uh, ballot counting in the hands of partisan um, panels. And that is a radical shift in America's approach to election administration, which has been uniformly nonpartisan around the country. It doesn't matter what state you're in, it, it, you know, it's like fight it out for votes. And then once the votes are cast, it's been very straight. And um, you know, I think America stands out. That's something we've been proud of. Georgia, we'll see if they actually use that, that capacity to make decisions based by partisan panels. Um, but I think that's something to watch. Hey, I want to move on because I've got a couple other topics here and um, domestic and foreign policy. Um, before we head into foreign policy, um, um, we've been talking on and off about deficits. Um, and lots of folks are concerned about deficits across party lines. And I think one of the concerns about um, deficit spending and the Republican criticism of it is, is this real? Is it situational? Is it just partisan? Because we've had a string of Republican presidents who cut taxes, promised this kind of supply side effect in which the cuts would be paid back by new surge of revenue. And that hasn't happened. Um, we had it with Reagan, with Bush, and then with Trump, uh, who talked about, you know, supercharging the economy. And then, you know, the deficit grew. So Vin, what, what is, are Republicans serious about the deficit or is the talk about deficit that progressives shouldn't spend money on their programs and increase the deficit, but it's fine for Republicans to cut taxes if it increases deficits because they prefer lower taxes and they care less about the deficits. Can you get us to some place of consistency here? Uh, probably not. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I, I was I was always a supply sider. I was a Jack Kemp guy, and I never claimed to be a deficit hawk. It doesn't mean that I think deficits are irrelevant, but I, I, I was not in that camp. Most Republicans that I served with and that are serving now are, are conflicted and ambiguous on this topic, in my view. Yeah, they think that deficits are bad. They would like them to be smaller but they also do want lower taxes and, and it creates an inconsistency in their voting. The only, what, what Republicans really in, in my day believed in was, and the reason we supported tax cuts, I, I don't think many Republicans really believe the tax cuts would generate 
so much revenue that they would wipe out the deficit. But we did believe it would help spur growth and thought that that was more important. And I still think that. I still think that, that, that whatever we may think about Trump, he passed tax cuts and regulatory cuts that encourage growth in the economy. And I think that that's, that ought to be the, one of the central principles of the Republican Party is that we are a party of growth, private sector growth. And, and if, if, if we have to wrestle with the deficits on the other side, but that should not be the primary focus. I think what bothers me now about the, the Democrats' approach to it, however, is we've gone to a whole new level where they've embraced a theory, modern monetary theory, uh, that specifically says we can have any level of deficit we want and it'll have no implications. Uh, it's not just that we've sort of drifted into this and the numbers don't work out or Congress has gotten particularly irresponsible. You know, John Yarmouth, the chairman of the budget committee that produces these bills, explicitly cites modern monetary theory and says that we can spend whatever we want. Yeah, I heard him say it's like the game of Monopoly, where the rules of the game allow you to print up new dollars if you use all of them in the game. That was not my analogy, it was his. That scares me a little bit. Yeah, and I know that's that's a popular talking point among progressives, but that's actually not what the Democrats have done. They've actually gone to CBO and the score that came out this morning or last night. The numbers, you know, particularly when you dig in a little bit, it's it's a lot closer to being responsible in a fiscal sense than the tax cuts by Donald Trump. Um, And we can go into the weeds on that. But, you know, I think there was an effort and it's being required by Manchin and Sinema that they have a responsible, fiscally balanced budget. But I I appreciate your candor because. You know, you're one of the few people who have just come clean on on saying this. I think for a lot of people, it's you know, a lot of people like me who are concerned about deficits, um, we hear Republicans and we're like, yeah, I just don't believe them. I think it's just a talking point. But you're, you know, I understand where you're coming from. And and I respect that. Rich, where do you come down on this? Yeah, I mean, the Republicans have blown their credibility on this. There, there is a, there's a good case. I, I actually agree with it. What Ben was, ben was saying, you know, Reagan era, you need to defeat an evil, evil empire, you need to get the economy going, and the, the deficit is not more important than those national priorities. Debt was much smaller there than uh, as well. Reagan said famously that the, the deficit was big enough to take care of itself, which ended up being right, actually, if you grow the economy and, and have at least some, some level of government restraint, you're going to overtake the deficit, which ended up happening some arguments over exactly why, but in, in the 90s, now we're in a, a drastically different place. But you know, th- there's some changes in the Republican Party policy-wise that I welcome from Donald Trump, new attitude t- toward China, new attitude towards immigration. But on spending, it's just something that the party, it talks about it now, but had zero interest in, in pursuing re- restraint while Trump was president. I mean, running almost trillion dollar deficit, a time of peace, mostly peace. I mean, we had small wars ongoing. Uh, and prosperity, it's crazy. And, uh, and, and Republicans did it. And they, talk, they no longer talk about the main drivers of the deficit, which is the out-of-control uh, entitlements. <clears throat> so you know, that doesn't make what the Democrats are doing any, any better. I mean, this, this bill is notionally paid for, the reconciliation bill. But you know, we're still spending you know, another $2 trillion on, on top of all the trillions that went out the door the last 18 months. Um, and just last thought on this, Larry, Republicans have just sounded the alarm on the deficit and the debt when they're not in power repeatedly. They've always been wrong, 
Um, and maybe they'll be wrong you know, this time as well. I kind of hope they are, right? But eventually they won't be. <laughs> eventually the ball will bounce the wrong way on this and interest rates will run out of control for some reason. And then the debt will be totally unsustainable and we would be facing some crisis where we really could affect you know, the, the, the standard of living of everyone in the country. And that's just a bad thing that prudence would dictate you, you want to just avoid running that risk eventually. And neither party has been very interested in that kind of prudent governance. Uh, then we've got a great question here from Mike Franklin, who's an important uh, policy, public policy person here. And you know, I think. And the mayor of Jordan, Minnesota. And um, here's Mike's question. Um, you've been talking about the uh, the Republican wave in 22 being in the oven, I think was your phrase. And the question Mike has is, do you think that wave will reach bluish Minnesota? In past years, particularly 2010 and 2016, national Republican surges seemed to stall out when it hit Minnesota. Well, I think Mike is right in, in his analysis, but yeah, I do think it's going to reach to Minnesota. And I think I, I mean, Minnesota has changed along with the rest of the country a lot in the last several years. Some places that's been bad for Republicans, like in the suburbs, some places it's been good for Republicans. A lot of rural areas that used to vote Democratic, not just the Iron Range, but some of the old farm labor country in western Minnesota, they all vote Republican now. Um, so the, the Minnesota today is not a Minnesota of 10 years ago. Some of that's helpful, some of it's not. But I do think the blue wave is going to make its way into Minnesota. I think Republicans are going to take both houses of the state legislature in Minnesota. And I think we will have um, a competitive congressional race in the second district. Of course, we don't know what the lines are yet, but I think that that race will be competitive. So it, I think it can move our way. As for the governorship, I don't know. Um, you know, it's the governor's ratings are not, you know, daunting, but Republicans haven't won a statewide race in Minnesota I don't think we've gotten a majority in a statewide race since Norm Coleman ran against Walter Mondale. Pawlenty won, but he won a plurality, not a majority. So I have to just, my conservative nature stops me from saying, yes, we're going to sweep the statewide offices in Minnesota. Um, Rich, you've been writing quite a bit about um, China uh, over the years. Um, and you've got you know, concerns about the missile gap, uh, about the vulnerability of Taiwan. Um, do you think there's much the U.S. can do against the, the kind of mammoth Chinese economy and its many billions of people? Uh, some military folks said the U.S. should be in a, in a, in a kind of strategic posture, picking our, our, our points, building alliances um, rather than going at China alone. Oh, definitely. I mean, alliances are hugely important. So I would say a couple of things. One, China, a huge country, big economy, but sometimes you can be miscued by sheer size. And if you look at per capita GDP or look at productivity per worker, China is nowhere near our league uh, with, regard, with regard to those measures. So we, we're still in a very favorable position. Just overall, geostrategically, no one is in a better position than the United States. They just aren't. You know, we have, we're surrounded by friendly countries to the north and the south by two big oceans. Uh, we have a, a, a robust private sector. We have rule of law. 
um, vast natural resources. I mean, we're still in a really good place. I mean, we can always mess it up, right? Uh, we're going to try hard to mess it up. But yeah, with China, I think the, the play is to, to ring fence China with alliances with, with these countries, all of whom are going to feel threatened by China and feel a strong incentive to working with us. We should take advantage of that. Um, but the big question is Taiwan, right? I mean, China is it's making no totalitarian states. They, they usually they tell you what they're going to do. And it's a question of whether you take it seriously or not. They're telling us what they're going to do. They're going to take over Taiwan. They, that, that, is, that is their goal. And the big question, I don't know where Vin is on this, I'm divided on. Uh, I have yet to come down whether push comes to shove, we should defend Taiwan with military uh, force. Um, th this is a, a big question. It could involve you know, a shooting war that potentially could go nuclear. I mean, this is hugely consequential. If we, we don't do it and China gobbles up Taiwan, uh, you, you could see the Chinese gaining predominance in the Pacific and beginning really to unravel the rules-based international order that America did so much crap post-World War II. So this is a huge a huge question. And I, I think obviously the lowest common denominator policy, we should be arming Taiwan to the teeth. We should be arming it with stuff, not that it wants to have because they, they look nice or they're prestigious, like the latest jet fighters. There should be missiles and mines and everything to make what will be a really complicated amphibious operation for the Chinese as difficult as possible. But it, unless we're backstopping Taiwan, eventually if, if China wants to conquer it, it's going to do so. So the question is what, whether whether we're going to make that commitment and, or not. And, and I'm curious, you know, during the Cold War, um, the kind of operative strategic framework was containment. Um, and your phrase ring fence was, I think, the, the, the way it was operationalized. But the Soviet Union is not China. The Soviet Union uh, was an economy that was in shambles. It was not well integrated into the global economy. China is the opposite of that. It's a global economic powerhouse, and it's a fully integrated into the economy. I mean, there's Biden pleading with his, our European allies to join us in taking tepid steps to uh, begin to try to rein in China. And, you know, I don't know anyone has a lot of confidence that the Europeans, particularly the Germans, are going to be, you know, willing to really invest in it. So, what is the operative strategic uh, way we should be approaching this? It's, it's absolutely containment. There's a wonderful book that just came out a couple of months ago by a guy named Elbridge Colby, who wrote Trump's national defense strategy called The Strategy of Denial, which is just the idea is we don't need to, we're not going to invade China. We don't need to topple the regime in China. We just need to stop it from expanding. And um, it, we should be able to do that. Um, you know, it's very hard for China to conquer Taiwan, uh, sorry, to Japan or some of these countries in Southeast Asia. It's Taiwan that's the main vulnerability. And just, just whether the advantage of making a defense commitment to Taiwan is maybe you deter the Chinese from trying it, right? And then there's no bloodshed and it's the status quo, which reasonable people in the world should be satisfied with. But the downside is that if they if you make the commitment and they go anyway, you either have to back off and totally shred your credibility, or you got to fight, and that's that's a big question. And as I as I say, I I uh, we have a debate coming up in the next issue of National Review. Colby is going to write one of the pieces. He says yes, it's absolutely essential to, to defend Taiwan. We have another national security conservative arguing no, 
Um, as I say, I, I still don't know where I am on this. So Vin, can you help us uh, with kind of think about this strategically? I know you were, you've been very involved um, uh, with kind of national defense posture and, and, and strategic thinking. We had containment during the Cold War. That's not going to work with China. Is there another kind of approach or way of thinking about this, a mindset? Well, I think it's very complicated. First of all, on Taiwan, I'm right about where Rich is. Um, a couple of thinkers on the right have been advocating what they call the porcupine strategy, which is that Taiwan needs to be a porcupine. So it's so heavily armed itself in every way, right down to the notion of militias of the, high, of the Taiwanese people ready to fight the Chinese if they come in, so that it would be too costly for China to invade. So, uh, you know, I think that's a good idea. But as to us going to war with them, I'm right where Rich is. I, I'm, I'm, I'm really anxious to read the next issue of National Review. I do think that there is a, a their economic leverage, which you cited, Larry, is real, but it's not without problems for them because of the way they're conducting it around the world. Uh, they're putting strings on all of this. They're indebting a lot of third world countries beyond their capacity to, to pay back. And they're very heavy handed in the management of their economic relations with trading partners. The last administration had uh, at USAID uh, a, po a, a policy called clear choice, which was aimed at going into the particularly third world nations and competing with the Chinese directly, showing them that there is a better option for those countries that desperately want to develop than essentially selling their souls to the Chinese. Um, I think that has to be a part of the strategy. We have to, we, we, we can't stop them from competing around the world, but we can take advantage of their totalitarian nature, which they want to foist on the rest of the world and which many people don't want to have foisted on them. Um, we're running out of time. Vin, I want to ask you kind of a global question because you've been um, such an important um, figure and, and thinker um, over these decades. When you came into politics, Ronald Reagan had a broad vision uh, that, that sought and succeeded in rolling back a good bit of the New Deal and changing the terms of public debate uh, towards seeing government as a problem uh, to the point that Bill Clinton even, talked, even said that government is the problem. Uh, you had things like privatizing Social Security that were, you know, it was in the ether. People were talking about National Review was writing about it. Um, and then you look at now, the Affordable Care Act was, you know, aimed at being destroyed by Republicans. It's here and it's expanding quickly, actually. It's expanding quickly. You've got energetic uh, core of the Democratic Party that's quite progressive and wants to raise taxes and redistribute. Um, the polling shows quite a bit of popularity for the core of the Build Back Better, tangible programs, uh, you know, like expanding long-term care for seniors, um, you know, in, in Medicare that you know are going to be embraced and ARP will be behind it. Um, hearing care for seniors in Medicare, I mean, it's, it looks like the pendulum has swung in a progressive direction. Does that make sense to you or do you see it differently? No, I, I, you know, I remember, Larry, after the, after the election in which uh, Ilhan Omar was first elected congressman from the 5th District of Minnesota, we had a panel at the Humphrey School, and I participated in it. And one of the things that I said at that time to the day after the election that annoyed a lot of my Republican friends is 
that the progressive movement with which I disagree almost entirely is the most coherent and organized political dynamic movement in the country today. I, I don't, they, they know what they believe, they know what they wanna do, they know how it, they think it's gonna impact on people's lives and they have grassroots organizations, certainly very strong here in the Twin Cities, but also across the country to back them up. I don't see really a similar movement on our side. I think there's a lot of reaction against that and maybe that's, and that's probably enough for us to win some elections, but in terms of where, where there's an organized dynamic uh, in our politics right today, I, I, I think it is, it is still on the left. One difference that I'd say between conservatives today and when I was getting into politics is uh, in the Reagan era, let's call it the Reagan conservatives. We really believed strongly that our policies would benefit everybody and said so loudly. Now, you know, people could argue that we were wrong, but we really believed that our policies were gonna make the inner city better and good for people of color and good for men and women, I mean, everybody. I don't hear that from Republicans today. I hear that they're opposed to the progressive agenda, which I am too, but I don't hear a, a whole lot of people saying, if you, if, we have, if you enact our conservative agenda, we believe it will be better for people. And it, it, it's not entirely, it's not so much that you have to be right about all that, but that ought to be the motivation of people in running for office and putting forward an agenda is that they have an agenda that can unify the country and make life better for everybody. Rich Lowry, that's a pretty powerful statement from Vin Weber. Um, and you've devoted a good part of your life to the National Review and to building a coherent conservative uh, approach to public policy. Um, do you agree with Vin? Is there no comparable organized uh, dynamic among conservatives to compete? Well, I think the right, the right's quite divided at the moment. And I, and I think there, there are Republican politicians who do make that kind of unified appeal that Vin is, is talking about. Yunkin would be one, Rick yeah. Scott down in, in Florida. But there is a, uh, um, there's a kind of a, a negativity uh, to, to the way a lot of Republicans talk, which I think you know is is justified in many respects. They're trying, we're we're trying to stop what we think is a a, a really pernicious cultural uh, tide um, that you, you need to stop before you before you do anything else. <clears throat> but the, the end of the day, you you do need. Even though I've thought for a long time, Republicans shouldn't look back to Reagan for everything, right? Um, circumstances have changed, policies have changed, and response to changing circumstances. But I remember when, when people were saying Trump was too, uh, too, too negative, I was like, is that really true? You know, because Reagan could say some really harsh, harsh things. You know, he was, he was fighting the Soviet Union and campus extremists. And I looked at his, his Reagan's 1980 acceptance speech um, at the Republican convention. And it you know, and this is a time, really bad time for the country. And he, he has every reason to accentuate the negative running against the incumbent. And there, there was just this strong um, through line throughout the whole thing of uplift and optimism. And I do think at the end of the day, that's, that's very important mood, mood music um, that, that Republicans will, will have to return to. And, and Trump got away with not doing it in one election, right? Then he lost in 18, he lost in 20, he helped lose Georgia. I wouldn't be very confident of him winning in 2024. Um, so 
my hope would be that we can, as Republicans, take some of the good, good lessons from Trump, the good policy departures, and find a new vessel for it, and um, and and find find a more optimistic way to to talk about the country. Thank to uh, thanks Finn Weber and Rich Lowry for joining us, and um, really appreciate your candor. I think this has been a, a terrific uh, conversation. Thank, Thank you. you. Enjoyed it.